0: What's up, everybody? Uh, Brian, uh, back here. Episode 9 of The Buzz is beginning in a tiny, tiny Days in in Rock Hill, South Carolina. I'm joined by um, a player that has fascinated me ever since I started playing with him, I think in 2017 was our first round together. Matt Bell is joining me today. Hello, my friend. How are you doing, Brian? I am... I'm doing great. Um, We both are at USDGC, kind of. (laughs) We're both trying to shoot as best we can, not quite working, uh, first two rounds, but we got two more, right? Oh, yeah. So we're going (laughs) to sit down and talk disc golf, and hopefully uh, it'll reverse the curse, and and we'll pop a couple good rounds together. But um, really, for you, you've had kind of a crazy uh, 2019. You've been all over the country. Is this your... Would you call this your first full full year, or have you been going full time disc golf for past three years or two years? Or
1: yeah, this is actually my fifth full year touring full time, just disc golf. Really?
0: Yep. <laughs> wow. Okay. It's like five years is a pretty long time. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I guess I want to dig into like dive into this right away. Like you haven't been technically playing disc golf that long, have you? How how long have you been actually like throwing a frisbee and playing disc golf?
1: Yeah, I first threw a disc in August of 2009. A friend of mine took me up to Delaw and that was my first experience on a disc golf course, and I was back there the next day playing. Uh, he gave me, like, a blue <clears throat> Star Valkyrie. I remember that disc very well. I threw it a lot those first few months out there playing, and, uh, yeah, the rest is kind of history. I've played basically every day since then. Whoa. Yeah.
0: 2009, and you have not... I mean, what what do you think the longest stretches is that without touching a disc? Like a week or a few days or, you know... A few days. <laughs> that's a bold claim. That's that's crazy. Um, yeah. So you start playing De La Viega, which if you are new to the disc golf world and you have not necessarily heard of De La Viega or you haven't watched any footage from De La Viega. Super old school course. Um, The ground is eroded to the point where there's roots pretty much everywhere. And it's infamous for having the Masters Cup every year at it and players always laugh about all sorts of crazy stuff happening. You know, throwing a perfect shot, popping off a root, rolling 100 feet down a hill. You know, all all (laughs) sorts of weird... And that was the first course that you played, was De La Viega.
1: Yeah, there's opportunities there to end up in a canyon on just about every hole. So
0: (laughs) how soon was it before you did have something like that happen at that course?
1: Oh, first day. (laughs) I mean, there was a, you know, early on, I was, I could throw pretty far, you know, the first day I was throwing Already? Yeah, I was throwing them about 375 out of the gate, fairly accurate. But then, you know, the learning curve, trying to learn at day law uh i've spent my fair share of time in the canyons looking for lost
0: discs (laughs) so so that's so that's where you spent most of your time as a disc golfer and it's perfect actually for the next question i want to ask or next section i wanted to dive into before we come back to your time at day law you said right away 375 you were throwing with that blue star valkyrie Mm -hmm. that's ridiculous. That's something that players want to get to right away. Where did you come from athletically? Like as a kid, what did your active life look like when you were growing and you grew up in Santa
1: Cruz, correct? I actually grew up in Nevada city, uh, which is up in the foothills in Nevada County, which is in the foothills below Tahoe. And so growing up up there, it was, um, you know, a lot of water sports. We have lots of lakes and rivers up there. So, just spending time out on boats, wakeboarding, you know, wake skiing. And then you have the mountains right there, so skiing and snowboarding was part of my childhood growing
0: up. Was that the main the main thing? Like did you do any ball like like hand-eye coordination sports with a ball or anything like that or was it mainly like did you surf too?
1: Um or was that later in life or That was later after um high school when I moved to Santa Cruz cuz I always wanted to surf. That was Whoa. the main thing. Um, so so You grew
0: up in in Nevada City and, you know, was it like, I guess I'm not very well versed in water sports at all. And is it like a daily thing? Like, are you always out there practicing? Like, what was your best like focus as a child? Like, did you specialize in
1: one, one of those sports? Um, it wasn't so much a sport, uh, that I specialized in growing up. It was actually fishing. Um, my dad's a big fisherman. And so that was, that's why we always had you know, boats. We were out there fishing, but he also liked to take us out water skiing and, you know, we had wakeboards and knee boards and all the all the toys. So that was basically my childhood up until, you know, grade school when Uh I started playing basketball. Okay. And soccer. Um, kinda stayed away from football. I was involved with football programs throughout my whole Uh life, through high school too. I'd I'd work out with the football team. And go to practice, but I wasn't actually on the team. Hmm. Um, but that was just to, you know, keep me in shape for other things that I was doing, yeah, exactly like skiing and.
0: Um, so it was more fun. Like those sports were more fun for you.
1: Yeah, but I always knew I wanted to surf, and I always wanted to do something athletic as my lifestyle. And I knew it wasn't team sports. I didn't know what it was yeah. growing up. I thought it might be surfing. Yeah, which it was for a long time, but once I started playing disc golf, it. It kind of took over pretty quick, but
0: but whoa! So like, when did you move to to to, like surfing? Was the thing that you wanted to do? You mentioned it already a couple times. Like that was your your main focus. And what? How did that begin for you? How long did that period last in your life? Did you compete? Like, what was your surfing life like? You you look like a surfer, (laughs) so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, that was kind of thing. Like my dad grew up in L.A. and he was one of the, you know, guys out there surfing in the 60s, you know, in the early days before wetsuits were even invented. And so, you know, that was always kind of a part of my childhood fantasy was just to be out there in the water and um, feel like that's where I belonged. And it was a, definitely a natural fit for me when I got down there. Uh, I became a pretty accomplished longboarder. Sweet. I was one of the better longboarders in Santa Cruz. And I did do several competitions and... It's, it's less of uh, competitive in surfing than it is in other sports. You know, it's more about just being out there. Uh-huh. You know, and were you out there pretty much every day
0: when you were in into surfing the most?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, going out there. You know, once at, at least once a day for four hours. Sometimes twice that. Be out in the water for six <laughs> hours. You know
0: what? What is the surfing community like as opposed to the disc golf? disc golf world it's
1: it has a lot of similarities actually as far as the the culture and the the type of people it attracts mm-hmm. um definitely you know people that aren't stressed out all the time yeah people <laughs> that want, people that want to be outside and and be involved in nature and uh you know just a community that surfing brings together it's pretty similar to disc golf it feels like family and you know you go to surfing spots mm-hmm. just like you go to the disc golf course and, and just you, hang out there all day you see familiar faces and if not you know you'll talk to a stranger out in the water like you would at a disc golf course that's and awesome you have a bond already before mm-hmm. you even you know that's talk sweet. to each other huh because you're just doing the same thing
0: and it sounds like for santa cruz like i've been there one mm-hmm. time which was master's cup this year seems like kind of the general theme of Santa Cruz is I feel like a lot of people there are into surfing.
1: Yeah. It's <clears throat> definitely one of the original surf towns. I know Huntington beach claims that title, but Santa Cruz deserves it that's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> you heard it here first. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's fact. It's <laughs> actual fact now. Yeah.
0: Um, so I mean, h- how long did you do that for? Like were, like when you moved to Santa Cruz, was that on your own or was that with family? Like I, I might be missing part of the timeline
1: uh it's it was with friends um, growing up in Nevada City, my parents um retired and moved to the East Coast. Oh whoa, before okay. I graduated high school, so I moved out there for a little bit and essentially graduated high school early to where I could move back to my hometown mm-hmm. and live with a good friend of mine until I graduated and Moved to Santa Cruz with him and a couple of buddies of ours. Sweet, so and there was actually a four pack of us that went down there. That's awesome. Yeah. And what? How old were you? Did you say like eighteen? Eighteen, right out of high school. Wow. Yeah. So then,
0: what were you doing for money at the time? Like, were you were you just scrapping scrapping for money, or you know,
1: like um, were got, you working jobs? Or I got a job at a at a restaurant in Santa Cruz. It's the Crow's Nest. It's actually the busiest restaurant in Santa Cruz, and. Um, being a busser there, it's the highest paying minimum wage job in Santa Cruz. Cause really the tips there were insane. I was making a hundred to 200 bucks a night tips. Whoa. So I was making good money as a busser there. And, uh, so just cleaning tables essentially is that, yeah. Whoa. That's, that's outrageous. Yeah. It was busy it's hard work, but it paid really good. And I feel so. like to live in Santa Cruz, you have to be making a <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> decent <laughs> amount of money to be making it work. But yeah. Um, so I did that for a while and then, uh, I got tired of that after a couple of years and, uh, managed a pizza restaurant for a number of years until, huh. um, until the original owner, he sold the place and I helped during that transition to train the new owner. Mm-hmm. And then once that kind of happened was basically when I was realizing I could travel around the country and sustain myself playing disc golf. So that was, oh, so
0: that was like the transition, like
1: right there. Yeah. That was pretty much the cutoff period for me as so, far as working. So I looked, I looked at
0: your PDGA and it had said 2011 was when you joined the PDGA. Correct. Yep. And you played like, you know, like one or two AM events and then like a pro event. That was two years after you first picked up that, that blue star Valkyrie and you yeah. were learning at Dela. Um, so, I guess my question is wh- when did you start touring again? So, so you start, joined the PDGA in 2011, and then yeah. how long did it take for you to go, oh, I'm going to change my whole life's path and I'm going to start?
1: Well, yeah, to answer your question start playing from earlier, golf. too, about you know, why I was throwing 375 the first day, um, I grew up with a lot of brothers, and friends were always over at the house. And we, uh, one of the things we did was play catch with a, with a frisbee with an ultimate mm-hmm. lid and it was competitive catch, you know, we were hard on each other. <laughs> <laughs> like we had to get Yikes. good just to, you know, not have people complaining. Making <laughs> fun of you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I so I basically already knew how to throw a disc before I, you know, even did it. That is that is a, that is a fascinating way to begin
0: learning how to throw a frisbee. Having your friends make fun of you for sucking at right. throwing a frisbee. That's <laughs> great. Because I was the the thing that I was wondering about was when you told me this, "Oh, Blue Star Valkyrie 375 like that's a Heiser flip." You're th- are you throwing that on Heiser flip?
1: Yeah, I I basically
0: throw everything like it's a frisbee. And I and I've noticed that and it boggles my mind that that was your first <laughs> taste because you know, I just interviewed Joel Freeman and he's like, "Yeah, I was living at, you know, mile high elevation in Colorado and my first disc was a Champion Boss <laughs> and I just chucked it on, you know, Anheuser flexes and you're actually you know, through, (laughs) through your friends belittling you, you just naturally learned how to throw it.
1: Right. Whoa. Yeah. And so then in, um, you know, that's kind of how we all learned, you know, it was pushing each other. And so when it came to disc golf, it came pretty natural to me. And 2011 was when the world championships were in Santa Cruz. That's what it was. Okay. So I saw that there was that tournament coming and, I volunteered with my girlfriend at the time and went up and got to spot on hole 12 at day law and got to watch everybody play and, you know, watch the senior legends come through. Dr. Stancil Johnson was still playing Got to watch him make like four putts in a row. I got to walk with their Carlos Rigby. who's like
0: 83, (laughs) 84 years old.
1: Oh yeah. Wow. And, uh, so that was my kind of first introduction to the tournament scene. And, About a month or two later, the Masters Cup rolled Mm -hmm. around. And by that time, I, you know, had got introduced into the local scene by volunteering. And I'd started playing weeklies. And the locals told me I should play intermediate Mm -hmm. based on, you know, my play at the time. So I ended up getting my PDJ number the day before and showing up. <clears throat> to hole one, and the guy who was doing the announcing the cards, mm-hmm. he was like, "Oh yeah, he's like the guy who, you know, I was playing intermediate." And he's like, "The guy who's gonna win intermediate got his PDJ number yesterday, I bet." And I was standing right there. I, I was like, "That's me! I got mine yesterday." <laughs> and, <laughs> and you and you won, or? Well, I took an eight on my second hole. <laughs> and Nate, welcome Doss, to tournament golf. I remember Nate Doss and. Uh, the lead card was finishing their round, and they watched me uh, taking eight.
0: <laughs> it what, was terrible. A... <laughs> it was
1: it was horrible. But I ended up making a putt on the last hole to win by two. Um, really? So you did win? I did. Yeah. You scooped them. Yeah. And so I was hooked after that. I I played advance after that for a so, while.
0: So um, you know, you you grew. Um. Fond of the sport through watching the pros play in 2011 Worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then you win this tournament. You started playing Frisbee just with your friends and just kind of pushing each other to be better, making fun of each other, mm-hmm. natural stuff. Did you have that competitive drive already? Like when you won the tournament, did it spark something in you that like winning just felt really good? Or like what what was that for you when you first took down that that tournament?
1: I have, well, I'm seven of eight kids, and only two of them are girls, the rest boys. Uh-huh. So having those older brothers, you know, it was a competition from day one yep. of mm-hmm. birth. <laughs> no, it makes sense. So, you know, I was always, uh considered myself the most athletic in my family, but I did have some older brothers who were incredibly talented and athletic, mm. and so... It was pretty much them pushing me and me pushing myself to be better than them, you know. Growing wow. up it was So it doesn't matter what the activity is, you're just it was a competition, yeah. yeah. So I was always really competitive growing up, you know, and no matter what I did. Huh.
0: I mean it's it's so awesome to hear that because I'm I'm seeing so many like similarities between Uh, these people. And I I like the way that you win tournaments because you do literally whatever it takes to win. Like you, you don't play like this textbook style. Sometimes if you need to do something weird, I've seen you like slide a disc on the floor to like get underneath a pine tree at Jonesboro. It was like, I think me and you were both stuck in that pine tree and somehow you got out. And I was like, I don't know who this guy is. (laughs) I don't know if he went to Hogwarts or something, but that was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's cool to see that someone who came from a big family just naturally like competition is just ingrained in you so any activity that you want to do you want to obviously get really really good at it. Yeah. So then mm-hmm. you moved up and but then you quickly moved up to open. Was that is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it only took you a couple.
1: Yeah, I <clears throat> I played out almost a full season of advanced and then oh, Okay. As as far as I like to remember what happened uh Drew Gibson and I kept tying for first in advanced, and he's like 15 at the time. Yeah, when he was just such a <clears> small kid. He was a kid. kid, and he kept beating me in these playoffs. And <laughs> so I called the TD of the, the next <laughs> tournament, and I was like, hey, uh, can you move me into open? Because I'm tired of this kid, <laughs> kid beating me. And uh, he put me in open. I had my first tournament ace the first round and tied for first. I had like an $800 weekend. <laughs> what? Your first weekend in Open. Yeah, at the Frying Pan. <laughs> uh, Drew beat me by five in advanced. <laughs> Shout-outs to and Drew. And got a trophy. So, uh, you know, that was kind of the start of me in my professional career, and Drew and I have had a, a great rivalry, you know, from the start, and we still do, so. That's awesome. Yeah. That's. It couldn't have been more perfect. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny
0: how you moved to open <laughs> to get away from losing. Like it's yeah, you normally exactly. you move up from advanced to open when you're winning too much, right? <laughs> like ah, I'm just this little kid and just get get me out of here. Like <laughs> I guess it was the opposite for me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but then I mean, so it sounds like you know, moving to open though kind of opened your eyes. Like whoa, like
1: this is like this is it. It's you can't go any higher. You know, it's good to learn how to win in advance, but it's certainly the fast track to getting better is jumping in to open and taking advantage of the fact that it is an open division mm-hmm. and you can anyone can play. And the biggest
0: thing that – because I moved up pretty early, too. I moved up when I was about 960 rated or something like that. The biggest thing that was the difference for me moving up to open was I, visu- I got to visualize and see new lines that I never even knew existed. You know, when you just right. so happen to get paired with that really good player that's way above you, you know, during the first round of a tournament – like, I remember I played with Dana Vici when, he, when I was just coming up, and he was in, in the middle of his touring, and he was throwing these hyzer flip lines that I, I just couldn't quite comprehend. You know, I, I mm-hmm. couldn't... It, and it's so funny, you get you can get to like 960, 970, you can even get close to 1,000 rated throwing really simple shots. You know, I was just jackknifing sidearms and, and trying to make putts from 20.
1: Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs>
0: So yeah, that's I totally agree with you. I think if you have the opportunity to play open and you have the money to play open, um, that's the biggest learning experience ever. And I think, you know, most of the people I've had on this show have not had long AM careers. Eric right. Oakley had ne- he's never played a single AM event. You know, wow. I, th- I can't. Yeah. Joel Freeman's first tournament round without a PDGA number was a 1024 rated round, and he tied Joe Revere for first place. <laughs> yeah, I just. You know, it's, it's, I think throwing yourself into the fire, there's definitely merit to that. It sounds like you did that. Yeah. <clears throat> so then, so then <laughs> there's still like some, some wiggle room here because d- was it just a spur of the moment thing that you were like, hey, eh, you know, I'm just going to start playing disc golf for a living. I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm just going to st- make it my job and see what happens. Or did you, did you plan? Did you scheme for it? Save up a bunch of money? Like, what was your, what was your head like at the time?
1: Like, what were you thinking about? Yeah. So going back to about 2012, which is when I moved to open, um, that was right when the transition was happening between owners at my job. And the previous owner, um, he gave me his sailboat as like, bonus when he sold the restaurant to me you know for managing the place for years what yeah and it wasn't anything crazy but it it was a nice little 30 footer a little catamaran and uh, i spent a summer working on it but you know i got to thinking i was like man if if i say sell the sailboat and move back up to my hometown and help my buddies build a disc golf course which you know that was kind of Something that came along that season was me and my buddies who I moved to Santa Cruz with, we were gonna go back up to our hometown and build a course on my friend's property. So I uh, sold the sailboat, quit my job, moved back up there with them, and we basically built a training ground for ourselves at this course. And we started running leagues and we had tournaments there. And that was basically my training grounds for the next couple of seasons until Two thousand fourteen when I basically won everything in Norcal that you could win. Whoa. So what kind of course was it like? What kinda of, like what was your
0: training ground? Because the style of play that I see you play is very unique. What like <laughs> was
1: it a unique course or like what was it like Absolutely, for you? Absolutely, yeah. It was um it was surround it's it was basically on a side hill, um, with a creek running around the bottom of the side hill and Tons of oak trees and big granite boulders overhanging. And I say a side hill because basically at the top of the hill is where Tournament Central was. And then all along the side hill is where the course...
0: You guys had a Tournament Central? Or is it the
1: house that you guys lived at? (laughs) I don't know. It was Tournament Central (laughs) Up, up top. We built like an amphitheater with a fire pit and we were like cooking food up there. Like we did it pretty legit. And basically we put a lot of the pin positions out on these boulders to where... In 18 holes, you could have, you know, a a tap-in putt with no risk or you could have a death putt where if you miss it, you're 80 feet below the basket and you're looking back up at it and you can only see one chain link because <laughs> it's so steep. And you have to – the only way to make it is to jam it into the underside of the top of the basket and then have it fall down and in. <laughs> and then you could have the same looking down where – you got these extreme downhill putts where you can't see any chains. All you see is the empty bottom of the tray. <laughs> and you've got to miss the top of the basket to get it in the tray. So, uh, and For those of you who
0: haven't seen Matt play or you know, watched any videos that he's been in, um, actually, what round was it at Blue Ribbon Pines this year that you just went off on putting?
1: Yeah, the final round. Okay, of the
0: majestic. Of majestic. So, so you'll watch some of the craziest trick putts you'll ever watch. If you go on YouTube, 2019 majestic.
1: I want to say it was Par Save. Par Save yep. did it, Yep.
0: Yep. And and but do you attribute like because I you know the first round I played with you ever you hit like four trick putts and I was sit like not like trick putts but tricky putts yeah. between gaps, you know, with, with nothing behind it. And I'm sitting there like, there's no way he's hanging by a thread right now. Like he's just getting lucky. And then I played with you again and you did it again and you hit like <laughs> three 70 footers. Yeah. And then I play with you again and you're sliding Frisbees underneath pine trees and, you know, hitting 60 foot jumpers.
1: Do you attribute that to that course? Um, it's partly to that course, but it's partly, it's mostly, uh, NorCal in general, Uh, A lot of our courses are very old and they were designed when people were basically throwing Frisbees Mm -hmm. on the course. And so they were designed in such a way where there's a lot of obstacles on the green themselves. Mm -hmm. And so to be competitive in NorCal, you really need to have a couple different styles of putts. You need to be able to make it up and around Mm -hmm. things and under things, low ceiling. So, um, you know, I needed to get good at that to be able to be consistent. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be competitive with, with just one putt, but to be consistent in NorCal, you need a bunch of different putts really? and styles because, okay. you know, you could play the same course every day and, you know, you could have zero obstructed putts and then go there the next day and throw what you felt like were the same shots and have 18 obstructed uh-huh. putts. Yeah. You know, and you
0: can't make excuses if you want to win.
1: Yeah. Instead of a nine gimme 20 footer, it's, you know, ten sixty rated 20 footer. Yeah. It feels like, mm-hmm. so, um, we built our course tough and in my hometown, there's a course called Tony's mountain uh-huh. disc golf and they claimed to have the toughest course in NorCal. So they came down, the whole family came down and played, played our course and we showed them around. Well, the the owner, Mike, he owns a tree service. Within a week, he had built nine new holes on his property. And only two of them were par threes, two par fives, the rest are par fours. And you gotta play at Iron Man. So it was already They've had sanctioned events out there before, and even was a 1,000 rated. It was really tough to shoot under par there. And so now if you want to shoot under par, you got to beat all these par 4s and these two new par 5s uh-huh. because he wanted to make sure he had the toughest course. After <laughs> playing ours, he wasn't so sure. <laughs> Are there a lot of courses like that in, in NorCal? Uh, yeah, there's definitely some mountain courses there for sure.
0: Because I noticed the one thing in Colorado that I thought was so cool was there's so many private courses. And the coolest thing about, you know, main disc golf is almost the entire state is private courses. Like, I think that's the coolest thing ever. You know, everyone's taking so much pride in the courses that they have. And it sounds like you guys were uh, definitely priding yourselves in what you built. And how, how, so how long How long were you practicing on that course before you were just like, let's, let's do it?
1: Well, yeah, it was basically... Uh, during that 2014 season when uh, I started winning all the tournaments in NorCal that I was playing, Barsby came home from tour for a little while and saw what was going on. (laughs) And saw what was going on. In his hometown. He's like, (laughs) who is this guy, you know? But he was actually friends with my older brother in high school. So uh, we hit it off pretty quick when Mm -hmm. I, when I met him that summer and, uh, he asked me if I was interested in touring with them mm-hmm. and, um, I said, yeah. And I kept playing tournaments and then, uh, my phone rang one day. It was, it was Greg and he's like, all right, you ready to go on tour? <laughs> uh, Sounds like something like, Greg would do. I was like, sure. Yeah. Uh, when are we <laughs> sure, going? Yeah. He's all tomorrow and we're going to be gone for a couple months. We're going to Minnesota. So I hopped in the car with him. I was ready to go. I got in the car with him. We drove all the way to Minnesota um, and played my first tournament in Minnesota against Ben Kroll. We battled it out. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting him in a six hole playoff. So, I first won-
0: tournament on tour?
1: Well, Chris Adiego actually earlier in the year, he took me up to Oregon. Okay at the beginning of the 2014 season and I won the Wartman open and that was my first out-of-state that's tournament. amazing that's and awesome that kind of fired off that whole season and I started just um, went in basically everything and so then Greg took me out to Minnesota won my first tournament in Minnesota on our way back we stopped in Idaho and won my first tournament in Idaho <laughs> <laughs> I think I actually have eight states now are my first tournament I played in that state I won. Whoa, they're not big wins, right. but they're still wins. They no, still
0: feel good. These days, a win's a win in the disc golf world. Like you still have to beat good local players when you show up, especially with when you show up out of state to go to like a C or B tier. There's players that play there every single day. Oh yeah, that you have <laughs> to play up against, and even you know, best even players if it, in the world
1: at their home course.
0: Uh huh. Even if it says they're 920 rated, they're 1020 rated on this course. 1030 rated sometimes for some right. of these players. Like. So that's, that's a big deal. And I I guess something I enjoy asking, um, you know, when you move through this tour and you're having these failures, these successes, you know, your game is progressing the whole time. Sometimes it goes backwards and you, you know, you're trying to learn new things. You know, the feeling when you say you play a tournament one year, you show up to the same tournament the next year and you're envisioning all the lines differently. Have you had that phenomenon happen before to you? Yeah,
1: I definitely, um, I can relate to that for sure. Um, Because Barsby took me on tour the following year, 2015. We toured for seven and a half months together Uh and did the whole swing across the whole country. So that was kind of my first taste of big tournaments that year. And, you know, every year I go back to these places, I find myself, just seeing the line better. Uh,
0: yeah, better. Not differently, but like legitimately better. Yeah. Right? Simpler. The shot is cleaner. You know, you're able to dictate the shots better. The, the thing that I, I guess I want to talk to you about uh, in regards to this evolution, right? Like as you grow as a player, you've always seemed to release your discs on Heiser. And I heard Luke Humphreys told me. He said, there's, <laughs> there's two players in my mind that I would call the most analytical about disc golf. You, Brian, and Matt Bell. And I was like, really? I, I'd never talked to you about anything in disc golf. He said you had, and I don't know, maybe he was just, you know, busting my balls here, but <laughs> he said you had some weird theory on Heiser release or something like that. Is that was he totally joking with me, or is, is there a reason why everything comes out? pretty much hyzer. Is that just a comfort zone thing for you or?
1: Um, I think it, a lot of that was due to uh, the disc change I made in 2015. Okay. Um, and that I was got, to Latitude, right? Yeah, I got picked up by Latitude. And so before that, I I felt like I threw a decent amount of flex shots because I knew my disc really well. Okay. Well, what were you throwing mainly before? Um, mainly Innova. Okay. <clears throat> but... With the disc change, you know, um, I didn't have a lot of time to prep before the first event. So I basically went through all their discs and, you know, one turn on a hyzer is the most accurate, predictable shot. Mm -hmm. So when I'm learning all these new discs before that first event, you know, I'm seeing which ones go where I want them to go on that hyzer line. Mm -hmm. And if they do that, they're going in the bag. And so... That was just so I could be competitive at the first event, basically. And it just kind of evolved mm-hmm. from there. Really? From that point to where I kind of ended up just getting stuck on that Heiser line. And then, you know, it just started making more sense to me as far as I like to think about every shot differently, but the same where I feel like my driver release... For my high speed, fairway, mid-range, and even my putts, I feel like I'm kind of lining them up all the same way, mm-hmm. all in that same angle.
0: So then you're letting the disc do the work afterwards, essentially.
1: Um, I think, I feel like it's the opposite. Okay. Yeah, like um, the reason I think Paul Macbeth is so good is he never lets his shots fall out to the left or like, or actually heisen, dump out or dump out would be the mm-hmm. proper term, I guess he's holding the same angle from release all the way till it hits the ground. Mm-hmm. So it packs on the ground. It exactly. Doesn't stand up and roll out 15, 20 feet. Cause even that can be the difference between, you know, winning a world title or not.
0: Exactly. He's playing this super high percentage shot. There's actually a video of this yep. Eagle. He gets in deer lakes at, at worlds. I think it was like 2015. Was it, it was in uh, Pennsylvania he throws this par 5 with a, I don't know, some nine ten speed driver, throws it 450 feet down this tunnel, and the whole time he's just going soft, soft,
1: soft, soft.
0: Like he's only, he, he doesn't care about the flight of the day. He's only, you know, worrying about the landing because right. he already knows where it's going to go. I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, so I noticed that, um, you know, that first year when I played with him at Texas States in 2015, and, you know, I'd already been stuck on the hyzer, for the first half of that season just because i wanted to be the most accurate i could be and so it kind of evolved from that to just trying to control the disc's angle from release to the ground and have mm-hmm. it be the same angle the whole time so i feel like i'm flexing them the whole time mm-hmm. but you're you you
0: have the idea in your head that you want to control the entire flight yeah and i think It's something that I say, you know, when I do lessons. You know, a new player, say they're they're given a gap to hit, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's a basket down there. The new player is worried about the gap. That's it. The high level am low level pro is worried about the gap and the angle. And then the high level pro is gap angle landing.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's
0: so I totally that's a very lofty goal to aim for, you know. But again, as you can see, you're starting to figure it out now once you made that change and would you say it's just something you're going to stick with
1: forever probably because it's starting to you're starting to dial it in or um it definitely works the best when you got the right disc for it Mm -hmm. because uh if you know i feel like if your disc is flipping up to flat or if it's dumping out you know you're if you're planning on that happening that's letting the disc do the work Mm -hmm. But keeping it on that hyzer and pushing it forward mm-hmm. on that hyzer line is is when I feel like I have the utmost control of my disc. So while I'm throwing this on this hyzer, I'm focusing on stretching it forward to that mm-hmm. landing zone that I I'm see. envisioning. So that way I feel like I'm just in the most control. And I play everything inside tight and low mm-hmm. left, which is why I feel like I'm so good in the woods. and. Good at throwing low ceiling shots is because I do play that tight inside hyzer mm-hmm. line for most huh. of my shots,
0: and and that t- totally makes sense. And obviously, you've had some big wins this season, all pretty much in the woods, except for Utah. I think had the one mm-hmm. open course that you played on. But um, as you as you move forward with this, I <laughs> I'm still kind of I'm still kind of missing something. So so you're getting better as a thrower year after year. Obviously. Mm-hmm you've put a lot of work into your putt was it two world putting champ- championships that you've won or just just uh, one one year
1: yeah regardless of my uh one putting title so far uh it's carried me throughout my career yeah no doubt about absolutely. it absolutely <laughs> no I,
0: I i've noticed that and i guess the thing that b- blows me away that i want i want people to look up video of you and and take a look at is the fact that and you even announced it to me in waco
1: you've laid up for a shot maybe how many times
0: uh, be, be it, honest it
1: feels like less than a dozen a uh, season probably yeah. where i'm actually like all right um, i'm gonna give up i'm not gonna try and make it in yeah from here i'm gonna you know just get it close
0: but you run everything pretty much yeah <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's players don't do that there's like a handful of players that do i just it's been carrying you throughout your season and, and you've made some outrageous things happen because of it. Is that
1: is that deeper than disc golf for you? <laughs> the run it mindset or is that I I think it is. I think it's what I really uh envision for myself in uh the next season or two. Um I feel like when I'm at my full potential I I realize the possibilities of what can be done in disc golf and so you know, I'm just going for it and trying to unlock something special, Play the- <laughs> <laughs> trying to make everything. <laughs> uh, I mean, and
0: I, I, again, I've played with you multiple times and in, yeah, in Waco, you obviously were trying to throw everything into the basket and then, you know, you'd make the comebackers when they, when they happened. And there was one hole where you, you were pinched around a corner. You had a basket sitting on a cliff and you looked to me and you actually audibly said, Brian, <laughs> This is about the fifth time I've ever laid up <laughs> before you <laughs> lay, lay this 70 footer up next to the basket and, and I was, I was <laughs> sitting there like this who's this guy <laughs> who is this guy but I I in theory that could be what disc golf turns into you know if we don't if course design just doesn't match and you know the courses stay the same for a little while what else is there to do you know could see a lot of playoffs Yeah, could see a lot of playoffs, or you could see the guy that has been running everything for a decade getting better at running everything, and then having that extra throw-in or that extra 80-foot gap putt, you know, that people are starting to hit more and more these days. Like, obviously, you've seen Barsby throw in from all over the place because he
1: kind of has the same mindset. Oh, yeah. Like, in our hometown uh, in Nevada City, we have probably the most talented group of local disc golfers that no one's ever heard of. And, you know, it feels like it sometimes when everybody's playing to their capabilities, if you don't have a throw-in, you're not going to win. You're, really? You're going to end up tied up. Is, is if that, you don't make that 80-footer. <laughs> so, so, it, So that was kind of... That was before we even started playing tournaments, you know, playing casual rounds uh-huh. in our hometown. It's like... You got to make all your putts, and you got to do something special so, if yeah. you want to win. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so that was just
0: as a, just kind of a f, um, product of your environment that you were in, where the course is pretty easy. Is that, is no. that why there were so many playoffs, or
1: uh, they're actually extremely difficult? Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we don't. I I never experienced like like people who are like, oh, this one's a gimme, mm-hmm. you know. Not in NorCal. We don't have gimmies. like, huh? Even a three hundred footer. It's gonna have a bunch of trees in the way or Mm -hmm. something going on. Yeah, slope green.
0: (laughs) So your whole (laughs) life is you know in disc golf's been high risk, high reward just from the get go. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, cool. I mean, I love I love that theory that you that you have, and I think I'm trying to as a player adopt some of that myself. But you know, you play long enough, and you have enough bad things happen to you. It's a thin line to walk sometimes. (laughs) I was gonna say you you held like a you know nine ninety ish rating for like a a season or two like and mm-hmm. and I always held the belief that it was because you'd shoot 1070 rated rounds and then you'd you know your throw-ins would roll away off the cliffs and then that you'd shoot a 970 round because of it but is it just you know natural progression for you as you know were you ever in a time where you felt discouraged playing like that
1: um i i don't think it i think it was a natural progression because i think the reason my rating might have stalled out for a season or so is i was going out and playing those big events for the first time Mm -hmm. and experiencing that kind of energy on those cards and it's it's not easy it's so much different to shoot well on you know the big boy courses your first time out Mm -hmm. so that was kind of it you know i was shooting thousand rated rounds everywhere i went but then i'd have those 960 Mm -hmm. rounds you know and not be able to hold it together as well as i can nowadays exactly exactly so
0: so and jumping forward like you've been playing pretty solid this year for for real and you just signed with dga yeah which players don't sign with dga out (laughs) of the blue like was that is that because you're close to the the company and i'm not saying people don't sign with dga because they're a bad company they make fantastic equipment um you know discraft molded so obviously it's consistent and solid but what was what was that choice like? Like, what was, the, what was the deal like? What was the relationship like beforehand?
1: Yeah, so growing up or learning to play disc golf at De La Viega, DGA's headquarters is right down the hill in Watsonville. And so all those guys in the company is who I played with and who I learned to play, you know, tournaments with. John Baldwin and Shasta Chris, you know, were like a couple of the locals I played a lot with. And so everyone through DGA. Mm-hmm. So it was just early on, you. you know, I knew a lot about their discs and the company, you know, Scott Keezy who owns DGA and Kelly Greenhoe, you know, who's one of the main workers <laughs> there. Um, I've known those guys for almost a dec- decade now. I so see. It, w- it actually came down to John Baldwin who's my favorite disc golfer, mm-hmm. uh, leaving DGA because of an Achilles injury. He suffered last year. And, you know, he was there basically their main ambassador. Mm-hmm. So for him to not be able to play as many tournaments and tour, he knew he wasn't going to be able to fulfill his own expectations mm-hmm. for representing DGA. So he decided to walk away, and they had a meeting, and, you know, I got the call. So Sweet. it felt like it felt absolutely perfect being able to step in basically for JB mm-hmm. my favorite disc golfer and represent DGA it, it couldn't be better for me right now so
0: awesome and and it's looking bright for the future as well you guys
1: are obviously continually talking and
0: yeah i signed sweet. a 2
1: year contract with awesome. them so i will be um you know i plan on fulfilling that contract and uh man the discs are just amazing i've been having them mm-hmm. i've thrown a few and they're amazing with them so I couldn't be happier about Sweet. that.
0: Sweet. Well, you mentioned twice that John Baldwin was your favorite disc golfer, and I don't think a lot of people know who he is anymore, like people just getting into disc golf. Like right. w- w- you can g- please give the introduction and also get, you know, why why John? Like what it, like what does he have?
1: Yeah. Know, so um the first time I played with John it was at Daylaw and we finished our round and you know we're talking it over the scores and, you know, I might've shot a couple down and then John's like, yeah, I shot a eight down and it, you know, I had to think about it. I was like, well, well, yeah, I guess he didn't take any bogeys and he didn't miss any putts and he hit every fairway. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he shot an eight down. It was the sneakiest (laughs) golf I've ever seen in my life and just smooth. He's the smoothest operator out there you know it's you wouldn't tell you couldn't tell if he was shooting 10 down or 10 over mm-hmm. he operates the same way and he's also uh probably one of the best surfer slash disc golfers as well so we got that connection really
0: that's awesome yeah
1: he's an incredible surfer and at least before was, the Achilles injury was that
0: something he did like competitively ever or was that just always a hobby of his that he played alongside disc or did alongside disc golf
1: i don't believe he was ever competitive but you know Regardless of competitions, mm-hmm. he's you know people are watching when you're out in the water, so everyone knows who the best surfers are. That's awesome. Regardless of the competition, and he's up there. Oh yeah, yeah, oh. He, he knows what he's doing out there. And and this is a masters level player too.
0: That's which is really cool. Like he's you know yeah. what is he mid forties or early forties or something like that. Yeah, he's in his mid forties now. That's I mean so so having someone like that to look up to again, like when you're just getting into the sport, like I know John plays a very textbook style of. Disc golf. He just has good, clean form. Probably good the opposite of my style. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Just get it done. Scrap it up. Yep, yep. No, I I think that's. And he's a he's a 2011 Masters World Champion. That's what that's, it was. That that's was one of tournament. his big accomplishments. He's won a number of national tour events at and the and to win on level. his home
0: turf too. That's that's a fantastic World Championship to win. And yep. again, like to to fill in for him, you know, obviously someone who you look up to. Um, and for them to put a lot of trust in you too, is a really amazing thing. And, um, I guess, you know, as, as I kind of wind this down, um, what, what is, what is the future like for Matt Bell? Like what is, you know, you're, you're with DGA now, you feel like you're at home, you're playing great. What is, I, I guess, what do you think has been working well for you this year? Like in regards to maybe routine practice, um, you know, how you're carrying yourself day to day and, and where do you see yourself progressing in five
1: years? Um, well, basically when I first threw that disc the first time, first day out at Daylaw back in 2009.
0: Blue Star Valkyrie. Yeah.
1: Um, I didn't really know about tournaments at all for the first year. I was out there playing by myself and you know, I wasn't watching video, didn't know pros existed yet. And I taught myself how to shoot under par at Daylaw. Impressive. And from that first day, like, I knew how good I could get. And I knew where my potential was from having played so many sports and being so competitive my whole life. And, uh, you know, I I was telling people three years ago, I was like, yeah, <laughs> just wait till, like, 2020. You know, that's going to be my year. But it started showing up this year a little bit, and it's just, you know, it's just confirmation for me that uh-huh. I'm on the right path and working towards getting to that potential I know I could be at to where, you know, maybe I could give Paul a little competition because hell yeah, <laughs> that's great. Nobody else seems to want to do it. Yeah, so. <laughs>
0: yes, seriously. I mean, so so for you, like disc golf for you is you want to take the game itself as far as you can possibly take it for yourself.
1: Yeah, and. Uh, you know, I think that'll happen for me in the next season or two. And, um, you know, hopefully after that I can get back in the water a little bit more. It and sounds great. <laughs> it sounds good. Not have to grind so hard, but I, I definitely wanted to put in the time and put in the, this full seasons yeah, to gain that experience and, you know, be on that faster track to reaching my exactly. full potential. So. You're
0: clearly doing what it takes. I mean, you're living out of the
1: Dodge Caravan things classic van life. Doing a lot of camping. I got all my camping gear in there, and uh, yeah, it's basically just getting to the next course and getting prepped for the tournament. And uh, yeah, this is year
0: five for you now.
1: Yeah. So, as far as the disc golf goes and me trying to get better, it's it's basically just putting my head down and doing the work to Mm -hmm. get to that next event and get prepped for it, and everything else seems to be falling into place. So, my man. I'm just going to keep that going.
0: Well, you got the NT win in Delaware.
1: You have a
0: win at the Utah Open. You just won Stafford and the Greater Hartford Open back-to-back.
1: Um, feeling pretty good. Yeah. And uh, In the woods, at least. Uh, <laughs> feeling pretty good in the woods. You know, after, the next step. Yeah. What is this, 10 years now that I've been playing, and I still don't know how I want to throw them in the open. <laughs> <laughs> but in the woods, I'm very comfortable. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so that's your next step is... Taking over
0: those open courses. I think so. Which I think I might see
1: more and more of I think I might need to, you know, do some field practice. Yeah. That might help. Yeah. Fields are pretty open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've maybe done one day of field practice.
0: Really? Yeah. So you just do a lot of and coursework. That was,
1: that was when I was learning how to throw the new discs, you know.
0: Yeah. And you had, to, you pretty much had to do tryouts I was like, for it. like, all
1: right, I'll go try them out. That's my huh. field practice that I do when I'm trying new discs. Other than that, I'm on the course playing. Huh. Awesome. I mean, I, I love that because, you know, we had. Seppo on the show
0: you know a a couple episodes ago and he goes pretty much that he's almost all field work he he does some coursework but he also is he spends a lot of the time in the field so i just think it's cool that two completely different styles of play are (laughs) two completely (laughs) different practice regimens but um you know i guess um he's one of the longer throwers in
1: the woods too he can yeah, throw he's ridiculous. Straight a long ways.
0: Yeah, he's one of I I had him on the show specifically because he's one of my favorite backhand throwers that I've ever seen. Yeah. We pretty yeah. much just geeked out about shot shaping and um actually, you know, I'll ask you the same question that I asked Seppo. All right. We've been throwing frisbees for a little while now. We both do it for a living, you know, and we've been playing frisbee and we've seen the disc thrown by top throwers. Across the globe, pretty much. Mm-hmm. After all this time that we've done this, and you know, week in and week out, seeing all these players, what shot still impresses you? Because you know, these days it's like distance is like everyone has that. You know, right? What does that still impress you, or is there something else that you really geek out about?
1: Um, man, I'd have to give it to what I know is basically the best thrown object by somebody on earth into it an object they're aiming for which was barsby's roller ace at day law <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah when i was coming up through the ranks at day law i started hearing stories about this guy who had aced hole four yeah you know on his way to winning his first national tour event and so That shot always fascinated me and just the possibility of what we could do with a disc. You know, he basically threw it up and over a mountain down the other side and it jumped into the basket. Perfect shot. (laughs) Yeah. So that was just, you know, that, that always inspired me of just the possibilities of our sport. Rollers uh, blow my mind. Yeah.
0: Some of the stuff people can do with cut rollers or like quick flip rollers
1: around corners and whatnot. That's a part of the game that I think is beautiful. Yeah. So that's definitely a shot that'll stick with me. But, um, you know, high elevation golf has always fascinated me, and um, I think that's something our sport could use at the highest level Mm -hmm. is get these guys up on a mountain, throwing down a ski slope, you know, Mm -hmm. 3,000-foot shots. Have a couple events out there just to, again, test all the different facets of what players can do. Yeah, and just to, you know, watch someone – Throw an accurate three thousand foot shot is <laughs> yeah. incredible to yeah. watch, and then you see the next guy miss it by two thousand feet. <laughs> you know that's why we don't have events out
0: there. That's why there's not tournaments out there.
1: That's what I want to see, though. Oh, so, absolutely. And I, and I would hope that that's what the public wants to see too. I
0: think that I think it is. I mean, and I, th- and I think if the public wants to see it, and eventually, you know, Jomez and these media companies that have Jomez has, I think like three times as many subscribers as we do PDGA members. Yeah. It's outrageous. And, you know, I, I think eventually we're going to have people asking for that. I think it's crazy oh, yeah. when you throw down a mountain, your disc flexes, and then mm-hmm. it flexes again because it picks
1: up speed again. Oh, yeah.
0: It's the weirdest thing that I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, you'll see things happen up on the mountain that you don't see happen on a normal course. And uh, I think if that's captured properly, it it could fascinate, you know? Oh, it
0: that could fascinate the public, you know, outside of the disc golf community. If we could actually find a way to, to run a professional event at high elevation, like solitude, you know, a course like that. I don't think it would be at solitude, but something along the lines of that, I think would be so cool. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you'd have to make up some rules like, Hey, if you burn your disc 2000 feet to the right, (laughs) you can always (laughs) rethrow. You can can always rethrow your disc. Yeah. Um, (laughs) but, uh, All right, man. I mean, I guess as we wrap this up, uh, if you want to do a quick plug um, for DGA, um, what are your top three favorite discs that you throw from them?
1: Yeah. Um, Man, I couldn't be happier with a few of the discs that are in my bag. They've been helping me uh, get some of these events this year is uh, my JB Hurricane that Chris Eads sent me. Mm -hmm. It was one of his throwers. And that's my go-to long bomber in the woods for straight shots and turnovers. and Straight hyzers, mm-hmm. um, and then a variety of, of pipelines. I have a SP one and a pro line. That's like a seven-speed fairway, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't know. People tell me I've never thrown a TL, but people compare it to a TL. Okay, but cool. I basically throw it. Just it's a butter fairway driver mm-hmm. for me. Whether I want to throw it straight or left or turnovers with it, and uh, really easy to throw and control. And then uh, the squall is pretty magical. Yeah,
0: what is that disc? I've seen you throw it a ton.
1: Yeah, it's basically uh, a mid-range with uh, wings. It's got some extra glide. Huh. It can, you know, there's there's holes at De I can't park with a mid-range, but I can get there with a squall. It's just with the same
0: controllability. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. It's got some extra glide, um, and it's you know. Not very overstable at all. Mm-hmm. Some people will consider them flippy, but you know I won't turn it over unless I throw a really bad shot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, sweet. So those are some of my favorites, as well as the um, the Steady. Man, that putter it's is pretty amazing. Much
0: a, it's a, isn't it like a Banger GT without the groove top? Is that so, I heard something along the lines I, of that?
1: Yeah, I, I believe it's a it's a Banger bottom like, or bottom something like that with a Focus top.
0: Okay, is what which heard. is a sweet – that sounds like a sweet putter. That's a good combo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I actually have had people um, try to get me to start putting with the steadies, and I laugh at them and say, no, I, I – as much as they're sick discs, like once you start putting with bangers, you're just screwed. Yeah. <laughs> you can't put with anything else. Everything else feels domey. Right. But, um, yeah, man, I I appreciate, you know, you even being on the show and talking to me a little bit about your life, and I actually learned a lot more about you than I thought I would. Um, any closing words at all? Any shout-outs that you got got to give or anything like that?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, I gave it up for DGA and uh, Ridge Roller. That's uh, my bag sponsor this year. They make the best carts on the market. I've um, seen those. Yeah. They're definitely the Cadillac of carts. Um, and then, uh, yeah, Silva Acres. That was a private course uh, that I built with my friends. Shout-out to the Silva Squad. What is it called? Silva Acres? Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> um and, uh, you know, the day law crew got to give it up for them. My boys out in Illinois gang, 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 <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <That's> <laughs> little shout out for them. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that
0: was fun. It. Hey, all you listeners out there, if you're still listening, thanks. Thanks, Brian. I still don't
1: have a closing statement. <laughs> so tune uh, in. How about, a? we go shoot double digits under par tomorrow? Yeah, let's do that. USDGC, and we'll close with that. (laughs) That'll be our closing
0: (laughs) statement. We're actually going to shoot under par at Winthrop tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) Good night.